Well, I missed this, and I missed you. It is uh, so good to be back with you, and uh, I missed uh, three weeks of preaching, so we better get our Bibles out now, because uh, we may be here a little while. So why don't you open your Bibles and go with me to the book of Mark chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be here in Mark chapter 9, and uh, it really was an incredible privilege for me to be able to go and to be in the Holy Land, to be in uh, the country of Jordan and the country of Israel, and to walk where uh, Jesus was. And I am so thankful for you guys letting me have the privilege of doing that. And I got to tell you, while I was there, I was thinking about you, all right? I was taking notes, frantically learning as much as I possibly could because I wanted to be able to bring it back and to be able to show you this kind of stuff. And one of the things that this did for me, it was really, in, in many ways, a life-changing trip. It did a whole lot of things for me, one of which was to convince me even further that we can trust our Bibles. This was, um, this was not exactly one of those uh, really easy uh, sightseeing, we're going like, to get on a nice bus and get off where all the tourists get off. Like, we were climbing all over the place, climbing mountains, climbing into caves, climbing down into excavation sites. We, we had an archaeologist that was leading our tour. I was so thankful for him. And one of the things that I learned consistently, almost everywhere we went, I kept seeing it over and over and over again, is that you can take your Bible in one hand and a shovel in the other, and the Bible is going to tell you where to dig and what you're going to find. And you know what we found every single place we went? It's consistent with what the Bible says. Isn't that awesome? And so I brought back as much as I could. I am starting my mini museum in my office. I brought back all sorts of pottery. Many people have asked me whether that was uh, cleared through customs. And it worked. It was great. So I've started my museum in uh, my office. I would love for you guys to come and see some of those pieces. And I also got pictures. Y'all ready for this? All right. So uh, I will not give you the three-hour slide tour, uh, although I am tempted. Um, okay, so here's the deal. I, I want, what I want to do here is I want to show you some of the places, just a few. I'm not going to give you a lot. Uh, this, there's more to come, all right. I'm, I'm going to show you some of the places that we've already looked at in the book of Mark. All right. We are halfway through, in Mark chapter 9, we're halfway through the book of Mark. And, and I wanted to kind of start with a couple of the sites of where we've been, all right? So this one right here, um, this, and this is going to shock you, but this is actually the site where they believe Jesus was baptized. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, wait, that does not look like you could be baptized there. There's a little bit of water right down in there. Okay, so you have to understand that the Jordan, this was like 2,000 years ago, right? So the Jordan River has kind of changed. It's moved a little bit. It's been dammed up at different places. It, it raises and, and lowers at different levels. But this is the site right between uh, these rocks right here that they do believe that Jesus was baptized. And, and, and the reason we know these things, and I know you're like, well, how do they know that? Well, one of the reasons we know these things is because archaeology tells us they built one thing on top of another. They would bring the, build these significant structures over significant sites. I do have another picture of the Jordan River, just so you know that it is still there. Doesn't it look awesome? Don't you just want to go jump in that? Well, Jesus was baptized. This is where God the Father came down and said, you are my beloved son, and he started his ministry. But then the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. This is what the wilderness uh, looks like. There is no way. i got to tell you, one of the things that was so shocking to me being over there was how mountainous everything is. There is no way that you could survive 
40 days out there without God helping you. But then Jesus, in chapter 1, he starts his ministry, and most of his ministry is in the area of of Galilee, and it specifically starts in one city, in the city of Capernaum, all right? And i got to pick, this is in Capernaum. This is the uh, uh, fishing village, and it's actually really small, and those are some of the ruins from this village, and and, and right next to the Sea of Galilee, this is where Jesus kind of set up his headquarters, if you will, for his entire Galilean ministry. And we read some of the stories that happened right here. In fact, uh, the next building right here. I'm going to have to show this to you, okay? Uh, this underneath, there's a building that, that's built on top of this, but right here, can you see that? That's a house. You know whose house that is? That is Peter's mother-in-law's house. We read about that story in, in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus went in and he healed his mother-in-law, and guess what? He kept coming back to that house, and that's actually where they lowered the paralytic through the roof. You remember that? This all happened right here in Capernaum where he kind of set up his ministry. In fact, I've got a picture uh, right next to this is the synagogue. And there is a, a, a synagogue that's maybe uh, 1,500 years old now. This is built on top of it. But you see this dark layer right here? That is the synagogue right there in Capernaum. It's not far away. Right, right back here behind this structure is where Peter's, mother, Peter, mother, Peter's mother-in-law's house. That's hard to say. That's where that was happening. It's right there, all in that area. That right there is the synagogue where Jesus was teaching, and he's trying to help them understand that he really is the Messiah. The bulk of what we have looked at in the first half of Mark has happened on the Sea of Galilee. And i got to tell you, the Sea of Galilee was beautiful. We arrived there um, in the evening, got to have a fish dinner Uh, on the Sea of Galilee. I wish that I could have spent so much more time. It was so beautiful. In fact, I took another picture uh, the next morning. I got up, and uh, this was where I did my devos the next morning. This is on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Where I'm standing taking that picture is probably where uh, Jesus got off the boat and and met the demoniac. Remember the guy that came out of the tombs that we uh, read about? That's where this happened. But on the north west side up there, that and, and you can see it up here on, uh, b- uh, above me, that's actually where uh, Na- uh, Capernaum is and where Jesus would have fed the 5,000, where he called his first disciples, where he did a bulk of his che- teaching. Uh, I got to do a boat ride out on the sea. And just thinking about, there is where Jesus calmed the storm. That, that's the water that he walked on. Is that not incredible? Jesus did some incredible miracles, and and all of this is kind of centered around the Galilee area. And here we are in Mark chapter 9. The whole first half of the book has been trying to prove um, his authority and and really trying to answer these two questions. Remember, uh, the the questions we've been trying to answer are, who is Jesus, and, and what does it mean to be his disciple? And the last time we were together, at the end of chapter 8, someone finally got the right answer. Remember who it was? Peter got the right answer. Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. But then Jesus kind of blew up their false perception of what that means. And in chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is the first of, of three times that he's going to Uh, predict this in the next few 
chapters. But that was really hard for the disciples to understand and accept because they just had no category for a suffering Messiah. But now, in this critical halfway point, the focus is going to change. In fact, we're going to leave Galilee, and for the rest of the book, he's going to be on his way to Jerusalem. And what's waiting for him there? The cross. So he's going to spend the rest of the book really giving us the purpose of why he came. And his disciples are still kind of wrestling with this. So right here in chapter 9, starting in verse 2, I want, to, I want you to read this because this is going to give us kind of the setting this morning. It says that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. So we're going mountain climbing today. Y'all ready for that? Uh, how many of you have ever climbed a mountain or a hill? Like, I, I realize that th those of you who grew up in the mountains, I'm from Ohio, and so what I would consider a mountain, you would probably scoff at. But if you ever climb, people love to climb to the top of really high hills or mountains. Why? What is the reward at the top of a mountain? It's the view, right? And when you get up on top of the view, it takes your breath away. And it puts everything into perspective. Well, that's what Jesus wants to do for us today. He wants to take us up on a mountain and give us a view, a view of himself that's going to change everything. And you might discover that your view of Jesus has been a little bit off. So here we are, Mark chapter 9, now that you can see your Bibles. Isn't that helpful? Um, let, me, let me give you a big idea of this text as we get started. Here's what you need. You need to see Jesus in his suffering and his glory. Mark chapter 9, we're going up the mountain, and we're going to see some crazy stuff, okay? Y'all ready for this? Chapter 9, starting in verse 1, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain... He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Father, I pray that you would speak to us even 
this morning. It is such a privilege to be back at this post preaching your word. Lord, I pray that you would convince us again the messenger is nothing, the message is everything. I pray that you would take us up on this mountain and give us a view of yourself that would rock our world and change our life, that we would walk out of here loving Jesus more. And if that would happen, then our time would be well spent today. And we give you praise for what you have given to us to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me give you uh, two shocking discoveries from this mountaintop view. But before I do that, I want to ask you a question. Um, How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand for this uh, because I don't want to embarrass you, but how many of you would say that you have a high view of Jesus? How many of you would say you have a low view of Jesus? Do you have a high view or a low view of Jesus? You know what I'm saying? Do you you think highly of Jesus? Well, here's the first shocking discovery that we see on this mountain. Your view of Jesus is too low. It's still too low. You ever been shocked when you met somebody and found out, man, you're a lot cooler than I thought you were. Has this ever happened to you before? Okay, so I have a friend of mine, and I don't know him well, but this guy's name is, is Pastor Timothy, and I've got a, I think I have a picture of this guy. He is uh, the pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel, Kathmandu, Nepal. Right? And I met him while I was in Chicago, and he's kind of a short little guy, really smiley, super nice. I mean, he's one of those guys that instantly you meet him and you like him because you can tell that he just loves Jesus and he loves other people. Really cool. Like I said, I don't know him super well. And then other people started telling me stories about Pastor Timothy. And they were telling me that one of the things that he will do is, even though despite, you know, maybe his, his age and stamina, he'll sling on his back a huge pack loaded down with stuff and, and, and walk for days up into the mountains just so that he can get up into the remote villages where the churches are so that he can help bring supplies and he can be an encouragement to them up in the mountains of Nepal. And then somebody started telling me stories about how his back carries the scars of persecution. I'm telling you, I went from, like, liking this guy to realizing, like, wow, this guy's really awesome. I think that's what's going to happen with Jesus and the disciples today. He is going to give them a view of himself here that just blows them away. Now, remember, they liked Jesus. They are impressed with Jesus. They left everything to follow Jesus. But they are going to discover that even their high opinions of him fall far short of just how glorious he really is. Is it possible, is it possible, would you, would you admit that it's possible that my view of Jesus is a little too low? That, that even if I think he's great, I think he's awesome, it's, it still doesn't even come close to understanding his greatness. Well, watch what happens here. Uh, verse 1, he gives us this promise. He says to them, some of you guys who are standing here, you're not going to die until you see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, if that means, if that only means uh, the kingdom of God coming when Jesus returns in his second coming, then Jesus got this wrong, right? Because we're still waiting for that, and he said it was going to happen before they died. But the fact that they placed this statement right before the transfiguration And the fact that the disciples are writing this down while they're still alive tells us that they understood that this promise was partially fulfilled by the transfiguration and then by his resurrection. 
Some of you are going to see this. And he takes just a few of them with him. He takes Peter and James and John, who become kind of the inner circle for his ministry. Now, there's a part of me that's like, if, if, if we're thinking about this, well, Jesus, why don't you just do this in front of everybody, right? Well, why, why, don't, why don't you let the crowds see this? That would make more sense to us. And, and yet, over and over in the book, Jesus has been giving this command to silence. Remember that? He, he keeps telling people, like, don't, don't say anything. Don't let anybody know this happened. And as soon as the demons start to cry out his name and who he is, he, he silences them and tells them not to tell anybody. The, the reason for that is uh, over and over it's been, uh, a lot of people, it's been easy for them to misunderstand who he really is. And they don't understand that the mission of the Messiah is not complete without the cross. And so he is constantly giving this command to silence, which he's going to give one more time here. And he takes just a few with him, and it says he led them up a high mountain by themselves. But it's not the vista at the top that takes their breath away. It's their view of Jesus. Look what happens, verse 2. It says he was transfigured before them. That word literally means to be completely changed, a radical transformation. They're just like walking along up the hill, and then all of a sudden, Jesus' outward appearance completely changes in front of them. In fact, I think Mark is kind of having a hard time describing this for you. Matthew actually, in his account in Matthew chapter 17, he says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. I mean, light is coming out of this guy. And so Mark, the best that he can do is try to explain it with his clothes. I mean, it is so bright, even his clothes, are, are, are they're, they're like white, like nobody could bleach them, intensely white. That's not a Tide commercial, but Mark is just trying to figure out, like, how do I describe this for you to help you understand, like, what in the world is happening here? And I love how he just kind of says it like we should get it. He was transfigured. You're like, oh, yeah, he was transfigured. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a thing. No, that's not a thing. We don't understand. This is a new experience for us. We've never, we've never seen anything like this before. Somebody suddenly turning themselves into a human light bulb. Like, how, how do we explain this? We've never seen this before because there's nobody like Jesus. And so the question is, and I hope you're wondering this, what is actually happening here, and why is it happening? Well, let me tell you what's not happening. Jesus is not changing or transforming into something that he wasn't already. What's going on here is that, that, that God himself, for just a moment, is pulling back the curtain so that Peter and James and John can get a little bit of a view of who Jesus really is. This is who he is. And all of a sudden, he, I mean, light is just coming out of him, and, and this is his outward appearance matching his true nature. In fact, Hebrews would confirm that for us. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. The glory of God is radiating from him because he is God, because he is glorious. And guess what? He always has been glorious. 
That's actually what he prays in the high priestly prayer. In John chapter 17, he prays, God, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus has always been this glorious as the Son of God. Now the question for us is, are you in awe of Jesus? Would you admit that even if I think he's awesome, I I still don't get it. I, I don't get it. And even if I expected it, if I were to see Jesus in all of his glory standing before me, it would be shocking. That means that getting to know Jesus is an exciting adventure. Don't, don't ever settle for some lame, tame, vague, packaged picture that, that kind of occupies your thoughts for just a, a few minutes when you uh, read your Bible in the morning or, or on Sunday mornings when you're trying to just check off your to-do list here. Jesus is going to blow up any box that you try to put him in, okay? And, and if... If I can read the name of Jesus flippantly, if I can yawn when I hear the stories about him, and if I can mouth words to a song of praise to him while my mind wanders to lunch or a job proposal that I have going on, that means I'm not seeing him clearly for who he really is. But think about this. On the flip side of that, even if I am moved to tears when I think about Jesus, even if I, when, when I think about what he's done for me in the gospel, my heart swells with love at the sound of his name, and I sing and I obey out of worship. For Even then, I am still not getting it. He is infinitely greater than my feeble grasp to know him. I can know him truly, but I cannot know him completely. And the more I see him, the more I know him, the more he exceeds expectations and he crushes categories. Because no matter how high my view view of Jesus is, it's still too low. Do you get it? He is so much greater. He is so much more glorious. You know what that means? That means that our worship, when we come together and we're doing this, that means that our worship at its best falls far short of giving him the glory and the praise that he is actually worthy of. I mean, he's still, he is still glorified by our hearts and our songs of praise, which is why, man, we are getting after this. It is never just another Sunday at Harvest. We want to come and lift high the name of Jesus in worship. And can I just say, I get it, okay? I understand that when you come in, sometimes it's a little hard to refocus. I had like a crazy week at work. I had a crazy morning just trying to get here. And, man, I'm, tr- I'm having a hard time coming in and being ready to praise. And this, this is why we're reading psalms and we're reading scripture that would remind us. I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. Come on, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let's enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. He deserves it, and we want to give him the praise that he is worthy of. And this is why we ought to be praying, Lord, show us your glory. Can you make that personal? And I want to know you, Jesus. I want to know that you really are that 
glorious. And I don't know about you, but sometimes my relationship with the Lord feels a little stale. Maybe it's time to get back up on the mountain and spend some time in his word, reading and asking him to show me again that you really are glorious. There's more that he wants to show us in this mountain. Just look at what he says here in verse 4. There were, there were appeared to them Elijah and Moses. Okay, so this is kind of weird, all right? Uh, Moses has been dead for about 1,500 years. So this is kind of creepy that he's here. And um, Elijah didn't actually die. You know that, right? Like he was taken up into heaven. But that happened about 850 years ago. So what in the world are they doing here? And we don't know if they had like name tags on or what. But somehow Peter and the disciples recognized who they were. And, and, and so the text, I love this. Peter didn't know what to say. But he's still going to say something, right? Like, love that. And you are thankful for that because think about this. If Peter doesn't say anything, then we don't get our questions answered. You were thinking it. He was going to say it. So we're thankful for that. At least he's going to get the ball rolling in the conversation. Maybe we're going to get some questions here. Like, what is happening? Why is this? What, what, what? Can you explain this to us, Jesus? Here's what he says, verse 5. Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents. Okay, so that's super random, right? Like, we've had all sorts of questions, and I'm sure that there's other things that you would like to insert there. That was not one of the comments that was coming to your mind. What? Um, so actually, maybe something is going on here, because that word for tent, Pastor Tim Keller's really helped me with this, love, love this. That, that, that word tent there that he uses is the same word that Stephen uses in Acts chapter 7 when he's preaching his sermon referring to the tabernacle. And it's actually used again in Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 9 to refer to the tabernacle. Now, let me tell you about the tabernacle. This is the, the, this is the tent. Uh, you can see the picture here. This is the tent that God instructed Moses to build while they were in the wilderness. This is where his glory was going to dwell. It's kind of a portable temple because they're wandering around the desert. Finally, they get into uh, the promised land. But do you know where God's presence actually resided here? It wasn't in the whole tent, right? It was in this section right here that we call the Holy of Holies. And there was a reason for that. It's because sinful people need to be separated from a holy God. His glory and his holiness would wipe us out. In fact, Moses actually prayed what we were just saying. Lord, show me your glory. He, wanted, he was up on Mount Sinai. He prays, Lord, I want to see it. Show me your glory. And, and God says, well, I can show you my back. You can't see my face. No man shall see me and live. And so this tent was a physical reminder that we need protection from the holiness of God which is probably why Peter is freaking out here. In fact, that's, that's kind of what he says. He didn't know what to say because they were terrified. And so while we pick on Peter, maybe what Peter's saying is actually not that stupid. Maybe, maybe Peter is understanding. He is seeing the glory of Jesus, and he's like, I can't believe I'm not dead right now. we got to get you in a tent. Man, this glory, it belongs in a temple. But he doesn't have to build a tent. He doesn't have to build a temple. Do you know 
do you know where the most important temple was in Israel? It's the body of Jesus Christ. The glory of God dwells with us in the person of Jesus. And it's of that temple that Jesus tells us in John chapter 2. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. You see, Jesus didn't climb up this mountain with his disciples so that they could set up shop here so that other people could climb up this mountain and commune with God here. He's not staying here. He's going to climb back down off of this mountain and he's going to carry on with his mission to Jerusalem to hang on a cross so that we could commune with God through him. Well, watch what happens, verse 7. This is crazy. We're seeing the temple of Jesus here, and verse 7 says that a cloud overshadowed them. Okay, so a cloud represents God's glorious presence, and we've seen this before in the Old Testament. In fact, this happened on Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 24, Moses is up on the mountain. He's talking with God. Guess what covers the mountain? For six days, a cloud covers the mountain in Exodus chapter 24. And then once they finally built that tabernacle, they got it finished in Exodus chapter 40. They're going to dedicate this tabernacle to the Lord. Guess what covered the tent? A cloud covers the tent, and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And then we see it again when Solomon decides he gets the privilege of building a temple. So now we're going to get kind of a, a permanent structure to replace the tent. And when he dedicates the temple to the Lord, guess what fills the temple? A cloud fills the temple. It's the glory and the presence of God. And it's right here, verse 7. It's right here on the mountain. And out of that, you see this voice. A voice comes out of the cloud. There, there's just so much parallel here to, to, to Mount Sinai. You, you've got a mountain. You've got Moses, who, by the way, when, when, when he was standing in the presence of God, his face is kind of glowing. And you've got this cloud. You've got this voice from heaven. It reminds us of Moses. Now, now Moses, think about this for just a minute, okay? Moses was the prophet who went up on Mount Sinai to talk with God. And then he came back down to speak God's word to his people. But God gave them a promise through Moses. And I want you to see it, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. You see this? This is Moses talking. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a what? A prophet. Like me, Moses says, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So what are we looking for? Who's coming? Another prophet. And he's going to be like Moses. Okay, so when I think about Moses, kind of like two images come to my mind. Uh, besides Charlton Heston, you, like you, you've got the, you know, the, the, the stone tablets in hand, right? He's giving the law. You think about the Ten Commandments as he's giving them God's word. But then the other image that comes to mind is Moses with his arms outstretched. He's got his staff up and the waters of the Red Sea are parted so that God's people could walk through on dry land. It's kind of hard to tell Moses' story without that deliverance, right? We're looking for a prophet like that guy. And when that 
prophet shows up, he's the one you're supposed to listen to. So the years go by. Some prophets come, some prophets go. And then along comes a guy named Elijah about 600 years later. And Israel at this point is actually two kingdoms. You've got a kingdom in the north, Israel, a kingdom in the south, Judah. And the kingdom in the north has a king named Ahab. He's an awful dude, okay? He's actually leading God's people in the worship of false gods. What in the world, man? And so God sends him the prophet Elijah who delivers them from the worship of Baal. And then I told you God takes Elijah up into heaven. But before he does that, Elijah and his right-hand man, Elisha, remember that? you got Elijah and Elisha. The two of them are walking out of the city of Jericho on their way to the Jordan River. And I want you to see what happens. 2 Kings chapter 2. Here it is. Uh, this is, uh, they both, Elijah and Elisha, were standing by the Jordan River. That, by the way, is the same spot that Joshua crossed over when they entered the promised land. And also the same place where Jesus was baptized. They're standing at the Jordan River. And Elijah took his cloak and he rolled it up and he struck the water. Now we're thinking Moses, we're thinking Moses, right? And the water was parted to one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. Uh, prophet like Moses? I mean, like this, this could be the guy, right? I mean, this, this sounds exactly like what Moses did. So maybe Elijah is uh, the prophet that we're looking for. But we, we know it's not Elijah. You know why? Because, well, God took him up into heaven. And then his cloak fell, and Elisha picks it up, and he too parted the water. So it's not Elijah. So apparently we're still waiting for that prophet that we're supposed to listen to. Well, then who shows up on the mountain in Mark chapter 9? Moses and Elijah and these great deliverers of Israel that represent the law and the prophets. And it says that a, a, a cloud overshadows them and they hear this voice in verse 7. They hear this voice saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So this is the second time now that we've heard the voice of the Father in the book of Mark. The first time was in chapter 1 when Jesus was being baptized. But that time, the Father was actually speaking to Jesus directly. He says, you are my beloved son. So notice now, he's actually talking to the disciples. Saying, hey guys, listen, listen. This is the one you've been waiting for. My son Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He is the one you need to listen to. He is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies. And he is the only way that you and I can experience and enjoy God's presence without being killed, without being destroyed. It wasn't through Moses. It's not through the law. And as if God just wanted to emphasize that point, verse 8, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only, Jesus only is the Son of God. 
who can enable us to stand in the presence of a holy God in worship. Wow! Is it safe to say that your view of Jesus is a little too low? See, mountains give us perspective. I'm praying that maybe climbing this one and seeing the glory of Jesus is going to help you prioritize your life. We sang these words, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour it back out in praise to you. You were made to worship him. And the problem is, if anything, becomes more important to you than him, whether it's a, a, a relationship or, or a, a bank account or accomplishing a goal or having happy and healthy kids or a, or, or a meaningful job. This can be good things, but listen, if any of those things, you care more about that or it seems more desirable to you than actually knowing and obeying Jesus, then your view of Jesus is too low. It's too low. Go back up the mountain and spend time with him. Think about this. You don't have to buy a plane ticket and go to Israel. You don't have to climb a physical mountain. You can climb up the mountain with him in his word every morning. And say, Lord, I want to know you. Show me again. And the more you see him correctly, the more he's going to become your singular focus and everything's just going to pale in comparison. Think about this. When you, when, when, when you prioritize Christ, it's going to give you clarity on Monday morning for why I'm here and what I'm supposed to be doing and how I can do it in a way that is pleasing to him, gives him glory and brings joy and satisfaction in my life. So he tells us we're supposed to listen to Jesus. He's been trying to tell his disciples something that they just haven't been really prepared to hear. He's been trying to help them understand that the Messiah is going to suffer. See, the Father verbally confirmed Jesus and his baptism in chapter 1 when he started his ministry of preaching and teaching and, and, and healing. And now at this critical moment halfway through he's going to give his confirmation yet again as Jesus turns his face to accomplish the mission of the Messiah he came to suffer he came to bear the wrath of God and die in our place which is kind of the second shocking discovery from this mountaintop view note this your view of suffering is too clouded. They just don't get it. Verse 9, they're coming down the mountain and Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody what you've seen. Okay? This is the last time in the book of Mark that we're going to see Jesus command them not to say anything. But it also comes with an exp expiration date. Don't tell anyone until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so now they're kind of wrestling with this. Verse 10 says they're, they're questioning. I mean, this rising from the dead, that sounds kind of cool, except it means that you have to die first. And they're thinking about, like, okay, we've seen Elijah. Now you're talking about the resurrection from the dead. This has got to mean that the end is near, right? 
And so they asked this question, verse 11, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Do you know that actually to this day the Jews are still waiting for Elijah to come? It's really sad. And when, we, when you see a Jewish Passover meal, the rabbis have taught them that when you're setting the table for the meal, you put out a plate, you put out a cup, and put them all over here. You need to set an extra place at the table for Elijah. And then halfway through the meal, you send one of the kids to the front door, and the kid's supposed to open up the door and check to see if he's there. Because if Elijah shows up, that means Messiah's coming. They missed it. But it is rooted in Scripture. They're asking, like, well, the scribes say that Elijah's going to come first. In fact, I want to show this to you. Malachi chapter 4, this is the very last page of our Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Well, Peter, James, and John just saw him. So commentators actually suggest that this question is really their way to uh, dismiss the need for Jesus to suffer. Think about it. Here's what they're saying. If, if we're already at the end and we've just seen you in victorious glory, then you can just show up and skip that dying part. Just finish it now. Just restore all things now. But Jesus says to them, verse 12, Elijah does come first to set all things right. And how is it written of the Son of Man? Here's basically what Jesus is saying. He's like, hey guys, I'm really glad you want to get your Bibles out. Because I think there's a couple of verses that you missed. There's a couple of prophecies about me. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? See, the scriptures prophesied hundreds of years before that the Messiah was going to come and suffer. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? They've pierced my hands and my feet. They've divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's in the Psalms. Isaiah 53, I stood in the Dead Sea Scroll Cave where they found this prophecy right here. A copy 150 years before Jesus fulfilled it in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Glorious victory is coming, but not without suffering. And Jesus says, oh, and by the way, that's what they did to Elijah too. Verse 13, I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. And the disciples knew that he was referring to John the Baptist, whom we've already seen was beheaded. What he's confirming to us is this. 
This is what it means to follow Jesus. He has come to die. And if you would follow Jesus, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. It kind of puts it right in front of us. Are you willing to put Christ first, no matter the cost? Spending time in the Middle East has kind of given me appreciation that in comparison, there is so little we are asked to really give up. I mean, come on, what, what do we really have to suffer? So why the hesitation? This is what it means to follow Jesus. Disciples suffer, and that might cost everything. But don't let your view become so clouded by what you might have to endure, by what you might have to give up. What Jesus has just done in being transfigured before them on the mountain is like a preview. It's like when you go to the movies, you see a trailer of what's coming. This is a preview of the glory of Christ in his resurrection. And you see that, you're like, wow, that's what's coming? It puts all suffering in perspective. That this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we would gladly follow Jesus no matter the cost. This is normal Christianity, right? But if the call to discipleship sounds a little too radical for you, then let him take you back up the mountain and prove to you he is worthy. Father, I thank you for giving us a view on the mountain. Sometimes we need these reminders of what is true, what is reality. Lord, if we can just confess for just a minute that so often we are distracted. We spend way more time on our phones checking the internet, trying to be entertained, worried about what's going on in the world. So sometimes it's hard for us to come to church and refocus and sing praise. Sometimes we don't feel like it. But you are worthy of our praise. And so, Lord, I'm praying that you would convince us again so that we would reprioritize today. And I would be willing to follow no matter the cost. I pray that if there is an idolatry, that you would convict us of that. And we put that away. Say, Lord, I want to know you. I'm praying that you would meet with us even in this moment where some of us are kind of feeling like our relationship with you is a little stale. It doesn't sound that exciting. Take us back up the mountain, Lord. Show us your glory. Lord, I pray that you would convince us again that there's no one like Jesus. It's because you were crucified, buried, and because you rose again. There is no other name by which we must be saved. And we give you 
the praise because you are so worthy of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray.